Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Welcome back to P.I.'s Declassified. You know, last week, um, last week and the weekend before were um, some meetings in Washington, D.C. and Arlington, Virginia. Uh, the Council of International Investigators met on a regional meeting, a great turnout. And uh, then we had the National Council of Investigative Services, Investigative Security Services, that met um, at the Capitol. Uh, we, we met with our Congress people, our, our representatives, senators, and the best part about the whole week is we were able to give the John J. Duffy Achievement Award, Memorial Achievement Award, to the two Capitol officers who saved Senator Steve Scalise's life last summer, Crystal Briner and David Bailey. They were fabulous. Um, they were um, so well received right there at the Cap- at the Capitol Senator Business Center. It was a great event, a great luncheon. Uh, we had several people from the Senate and the Assembly there, and it was uh, really refreshing to see two heroes of our country uh, receive these two awards. So I want to tell everybody about that, and then let's move on to oh. Now, I should tell you also, there is a, a super conference, if you haven't heard about it, a super conference coming up in New York in November. Keep your ears turned to that, tuned to that. Uh, Steve Rombaum and Jimmy Messis are heading that up, and it'll be the uh, Northeast Super Conference with a lot of associations joining in to sponsor. So if you're interested in sponsoring, contact either contact me or contact one of them, and we'll talk about it. So let's move on this morning to my guest, Tyler Maroney. Welcome, Tyler. Hi, Francie. Thank you for having me. Yeah. You're, uh, now, you're in New York, right? That's correct? That's right. That's right. What part of New York? So we're in Manhattan, um, in New York City, and our firm uh, covers the tri-state area. Um which includes New Jersey and Connecticut, as well as a number of other states uh, on the East Coast, um, kind of okay. from from uh, Massachusetts down uh, down to Virginia. And just to give us an idea, what what your firm actually does, Tyler? Sure. Um, so our firm, which is called QRI, which stands for Quest Research and Investigations, is uh, what we call a corporate investigations firm. Um, that has mm-hmm. a lot of different tentacles. And the reason I use that phrase is that um, most of our clients are um, coming to us through law firms who are handling either white-collar criminal defense projects, internal investigations for corporations, or civil litigation disputes. Um, and uh, as you've articulated well, Francie, yourself, there is this stereotype often in our industry that we are um, kind of pigeonholed into of, of doing one type of work that includes, you know, hanging out in courthouses, doing surveillance, dumpster diving, 
um, and that kind of thing. All of which, of course, is part of the work, but um, um, the, the types of projects that we take on are often geared towards the clients that we have near us. That includes um, uh, large corporations and looking at issues like money laundering and uh, fraud, um, uh, which includes everything from vendor fraud to, um, you know, expense account fraud. Um, but, you know, even wider than that, a lot of our work involves what we call uh, our investigations in the public interest. So doing work for indigent defendants, which I know you, of course, have a lot of experience doing, um, helping mm-hmm. in the kind of classic criminal defense um, uh, cases that, you know, if you have a single interview that needs to be done, that can be extremely beneficial to your client, um, especially when they have very few resources um, in facing a, a a prosecution by the state. For sure. Well, and, and I'm looking at your website, Tyler. I, I found it kind of interesting because you're, um, at first blush, it looks like a uh, legal website, a, a uh, group of attorneys that have put together a website. And then you have to, you look further and you find out that, hmm, there's one lawyer, but the rest of them are all investigators. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting website, I just have to say, because i just uh, been involved in doing my own website, so I wanted to look at it real quick. And uh, it's well, yeah. very well done, by the way. Very uh, very organized, clean, clean-looking, clean I think, and uh, very professional. I have to compliment well, you thank you. That. We have spent um, way too much time on it, <laughs> so I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I think one of the things that, that we have learned is that a website is crucial in this industry, but not for the ways that you might expect, right? I mean, for many industries, um, you want people to find you um, by Mm -hmm. searching on the internet, right? Um, uh, But that's not necessarily the fact with us, right? Um, Like, we don't necessarily want clients who are going to search private investigator New York because you might have someone who wants you to find their missing cat. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know... Mm -hmm. Or, or to prove that the that the lights that they saw in the in the in the sky last night were were UFOs. So, but our our website, like most um, you know in our industry, are designed to kind of speak to the types of clients that we're attracting. Um, and in uh-huh. that sense, we want to try to use the language of the people that we're working for, essentially, so that we can show that we understand the nature of the assignment uh, and the world in which they are operating. Well, and, and you're right. It's clearly targeted to your corporate client. It, it's, uh, I have to say, it's, I was quite impressed with it um, and particularly interested because I, I, know, I know the kind of time you put into it. I, I see you have a number of people involved. So the more people you get involved, the more complicated it gets, right. <laughs> as I know. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, I mean, I think that one of the pitfalls of a of a website that's too busy, you know, because obviously a website is a way of advertising yourself, is that there right. is language that can be used that might turn off certain clients um, or even mm-hmm. imagery. I mean, there are countless websites um, that are run by PIs that have a kind of I don't want to use the word cliche because it's also accurate of, you know, pictures of people holding long lens cameras or um, mm-hmm. shadowy, fig- mm-hmm. shadowy figures walking through midtown Manhattan. It gives the sense that the only work that's being done 
um, is is kind of dangerous surveillance work. Um, exactly. But, you know, the the opposite side of that is the kind of corporate speak that goes into a lot of websites. And this is not just in our industry, of course, right? It's when people are using phrases like risk mitigation, which is a common phrase in my field, in our field. And right. I don't really right. quite know what that means. It's a little bit of I was just of dog, I dog was whistle. I going to ask you <laughs> to describe what that means. <laughs> Well, look, I mean, I think our job largely is to help people navigate difficult situations, right? Whether that be um, for a someone who has been arrested, maybe falsely, or somebody who is considering uh, hiring uh, a new CFO or considering buying uh, a company overseas. Those two examples, of course, would fall into what we call the due diligence category of work that we do. Um, but also, you know, kind of navigating, say, some big civil dispute, uh, you know, a contract mm-hmm. dispute between two companies or, you know, an employee who is seen to be stealing trade secrets. And, you know, those are all situations in which there is risky behavior, for example, or in which um, the client is trying to figure out, you know, you know, where they feel where they can feel comfortable um, moving forward using the information that is given to them by an investigator. Um, and moving forward could mean everything from filing a lawsuit to um, uh, countering a an indictment to buying a company. Uh, I could talk mm-hmm. in depth about all of these, but I just wanted to make sure I'm, I'm making sense with respect to the right. phrase no. risk. You're, ab- you're absolutely right, because I think... I actually think the general public does not connect us with the legal process. We do. We know that we're involved uh-huh. in the legal field, and then anything we do could end up in court, for example. But mm-hmm. I don't think the general public sees us that way. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, compl- no. I completely agree. In fact, you know, so many of our cases are governed by attorneys, whether they're civil mm-hmm. uh, litigators or criminal defense lawyers or inside counsel in a company who are, have a very specific legal strategy, and we are mm-hmm. operating as their agents. Um, so, and I think, you know, getting that point out there is... I suspect would be good for the reputation of our industry because, um, of course, going back to this idea that there's a kind of cliche of the investigator who is acting improperly or, you know, without a a short leash, it's actually quite the opposite in many cases, as you know well. Mm -hmm. We are working very closely with attorneys who have thought very clearly and very strategically about what kind of work we need to do. In fact, my business partner in QRI, the founder of the company, is a lawyer himself. And so that, that can benefit us a lot because although we're not, you know, representing people, we are working for clients um, through their law firms or through their individual lawyers who, are, um, who understand the kind of work that we do and, and respect mm-hmm. the fact that we can speak and think like lawyers even if we aren't necessarily lawyers. Well, and I... And you mentioned something uh, about lawyers being responsible that were agents for, for attorneys. Uh, it was a huge wake-up call during the Hewlett-Packard debacle when attorneys all of a sudden realized, oops, I'm responsible for these private investigators who are working for me. <laughs> and there was a period yeah. of time, if you probably remember, that attorneys were saying, 
huh, maybe I shouldn't hire a private investigator. Because yeah, I don't want to no, be that's a good point. That that's a great point. I mean, I think every few years there is some kind of a let's call it a scandal that involves our, you know, a, a private investigator mm-hmm. or the use of private right. investigators. Um, I mean, the most recent one being the reporting about um, the investigative firms that were hired by David Boys, the attorney who was working with Harvey Weinstein. Um, right, and. You know, there there was a lot of discussion. It's actually quite interesting. My wife is a lawyer, and I'm a private investigator, and we were talking about this issue and reading the article, the, the first of which appeared in The New Yorker a few months ago. Um, and she turned to me and she said, this is outrageous. And I was thinking, absolutely. And I was thinking about the alleged conduct of the investigators in the case, which we can talk about later. Uh-huh. And, but right. she was referring to the the conduct of the lawyers who had been engaging the the investigators. <laughs> um, and so funny. it's this it's this I don't want to say it's a murky world, but it's a kind of fascinating, sophisticated world in which there are, you know, letters of engagement that um, kind of govern how we can and should behave, not just us, but the lawyers themselves and the ultimate client. And I think it's a conversation that should be had more often. I do. I totally agree. Well, what, since you mentioned the Harvey Weinstein situation, why don't you go ahead and talk about that? Let's run the subject. Uh, sure. Well, well, do you, you want, want me to talk about it? Yeah, go ahead. Why don't you go ahead and talk about it and, and talk about the things that you saw that the investigators were doing. And you can even throw in the things that, that your wife saw about what the attorneys were doing. I mean, it's it's fascinating because reading about it, you never quite know what really happened. Right. Um, sure. And, you know, we, we only have the benefit of reading what has been reported. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I think on the one hand, it's frustrating because the way that the public reads these articles um, Suddenly, we're kind of we being investigators are kind of cast as 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 rule flouters and as people who are willing to kind of do whatever needs to be done with respect to what the client needs. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And um, you know that's it's I don't think it's an accurate reflection of the overwhelming majority of the work that investigators do and how many of us are out there. Um, I mean, just to take one example, I think there are more than 40,000 licensed private investigators in the country. Mm-hmm. Those right. are Department of Labor statistics. There's more than 5,000 in Calif- California alone. Um, and now there's let's actually assume almost 9,000 in California. <laughs> 9,000, excuse me. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that's a, that's a lot of people who are, you know, who are doing fascinating, sophisticated work. And, and when you when you read these articles about let's assume that the conduct that's being reported on is improper. It kind of casts a shadow across the rest of us. Um, So, but I suppose every industry has to deal with this. I mean, there are lawyers who are arrested for breaking the law and there are, there are people in every industry. Um, You know, so in many ways, it's almost like an uphill battle. Don't you agree? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's a little different though, for some reason. And I've always thought this was a puzzle is that if a doctor does something wrong or Mm -hmm. defrauds the government, for example, like Medicare fraud, or if a lawyer 
you know, takes a client's trust account or if stockbrokers say Bernie Madoff bilks people for millions of dollars, it doesn't affect the whole group. Mm-hmm. A doctor does something wrong. It doesn't affect all doctors. Nobody says, let's get rid of the doctors. <laughs> right. But it does, it does with us. And it's a, such a puzzle to me why that happens. And I guess maybe because mm-hmm. we are seen, as you, as you described, we're seen as being from the dark side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I don't know. Yeah. What do you think about that? I mean, I mean, I could talk about this issue all day long, and I'm glad you raised it. I mean, part of it, I think, is that the, um, you know, and again, I know that you've, you've discussed this at length publicly, is this idea that the private investigator is somebody who has the ability and the right to do things that the rest of us cannot do. Um, to operate mm-hmm. in the shadows, to do things like you mentioned the Hewlett-Packard case in which they were, the investigators were hired to pretext to, in other words, to pretend to be somebody else to obtain personal information, such as social security right. numbers and tele- telephone numbers and phone records. Um, it just, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, that feels improper um, and certainly mm-hmm. illegal. Um you know, to be fair, however, I, you know, one of the issues that I take with the regulation of our industry, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, too, is that every state governs how investigators operate in very, very different ways. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, hopefully investigators who are, you know, in, in some cases, you know, they have to take we, we have to take uh, tests um, and we have to sometimes do you know, additional training, depending on the state, mm-hmm. uh, are paying attention to mm-hmm. what those rules are. Um, and, you know, whether it's, um, you know, using some kind of cover or whether it's um, not properly identifying yourself um, when doing an interview with a witness, for example. Um, right. And it's, you know, I, I, I suppose I can accept that it's difficult for people who operate in multiple states to understand what the rules are. But I think that if we just use basic common sense about what is proper and what's improper, um, it can get us a long way. Now, that goes with the understanding that there are certain types of cases in certain states in which you are allowed to do certain things that you wouldn't normally be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, you probably have some good examples of that. But, um, you know, this I used to be a journalist, and one of the things that people often ask me is, you know, it, it must be difficult to get people to talk now that you're no longer a journalist because you can't attach your name to a brand that is recognized by someone you're interviewing. And I find actually that people like to talk just as much now as they did when I'm calling as a journalist, (laughs) as a reporter. I mean, I think people like to tell stories. And I think we have this idea that the only way to really get someone to tell us something is to somehow sneak in through the back door and to manipulate them. Um, and I just don't find that Absolutely. to be accurate. Yeah. Uh, we need to take a quick break, Tyler. Uh, I want to come back to this. This is an important subject. We'll be right back with Tyler, Tyler Maroney. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com 
PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. just tuned into the show. I'm talking with Tyler Maroney with QRI Investigations out of New York City. Uh, You guys ought to be particularly interested in the conference that's coming up in November. So I will send you some details on that. Have you heard about it? You know, I I have not, and I confess that um, I don't do a good enough job of um, getting together with other investigators at conferences um, and the like. And I think that I admire how much you do that and how much you talk about it, because I think that our industry could benefit from doing more of that. Um, it sometimes feels like a bit of a solitary pursuit, what we do. Um, but anytime we get True. together as investigators and talk about tradecraft and tactics and making connections, um, we all benefit from it. So um, you know, I look forward to keeping in touch with you and others about those types of gatherings. Well, I'll send you some details on that conference. It's literally in your back door. Um, Great. And uh, so we'd love to, you know, have you participate in whatever way you can. It's, it's just in attending. So um, I will Great. let you know. So, um, okay, so moving on, you were just saying that um, um, people had asked you about the transition, and you found it was that people like to talk. I, I agree with you. Uh, years ago, the law changed in California on criminal defense, for both prosecutors and uh, criminal defense folks that you had to identify yourself, who you were working for, and uh, the name of your your client or the defendant uh, working Mm -hmm. on the defense side. 
And at the time, I thought, hmm, that's going to keep people from talking. Because before that, you could just say, hi, I'm an investigator. I'm working on this case. I'd like to ask you a few questions. And once that came out, I thought, people are going to be restricted. They're not going to want to say anything. It hasn't not been true at all. Not at all. So it's always interesting to find how much people do want to talk. They, you know, yeah. typically they've experienced something they they want to tell people about. Exactly. I mean, I the other thing to to think about and to, for us all to remember, I think, is that if you are forthcoming with somebody, um, they're mm-hmm. probably more likely to be forthcoming with you. Like, imagine you're on a date, like on a first date, and and you're kind of making up things about yourself, um, and you're uh-huh. not a very good liar. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, right. the, the the person on the other side of the table is probably going to read that and realize, you know, that they're they're talking to somebody who is not being completely honest about who they are and maybe become more guarded. Um, exactly. I'll tell you a funny story. I once was in uh, – I was working on a case. It was a big criminal defense case, um, and we were talking to – we had a, a wonderful assignment, which was to interview literally hundreds of people who had known – um, um, one of the witnesses to learn more about one of the government witnesses. And mm-hmm. we were doorstepping all of them, right? Doorstepping meaning, you know, not, not calling in advance, just showing up and, and speaking to them. Um, right. And this has a lot of advantages because, you know, it can be harder to slam the door on somebody that is to hang up the phone on them. Um, and I, right. and I knocked on uh, one woman's door and it was evening around dinner time. The sun was just setting. I was wearing a suit. Um, and I knocked on her door and she came and looked at me through the screen and she said, can I help you? And she gave me a very nervous look. And I, and I, and I used exactly the kind of approach that you just mentioned. And I said, hi, my name is Tyler Maroney. I'm a private investigator and I'm, I'm working on a project and I can really use your help. And before I finished Mm -hmm. the sentence, she burst out laughing and she looked at me and she said, you are not a private investigator. Um, she didn't believe, she didn't believe me. And, and it was actually a wonderful uh, kind of like breaking of the ice um, of the tension because I said, no, really, I am. Look me up. And I gave her a business card. And we had this kind of funny back and forth in which I had to prove to her that I am, that I was who I said that I was. Um, and once she realized that 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 I was that I was being honest with her, she, she let me in the door. Um, and I think that if I had taken another approach um, you know, by saying, I can't really tell you what I'm doing. And I hope you understand that, you know, um, you know, that I just, you know, there's all these confidentiality provisions. It, it just would have made her less willing to talk to me. I bet you've got you know, a, a you're number actually, of it. You're so right. Yeah. I, you know, what, what comes to mind is uh, for me, because as you know, I do criminal defense work is mm-hmm. I am often out in the streets where maybe there's a, uh, and and it's maybe in a low-income, crime-ridden area, and, and there may be a bunch of guys standing out in front of the gate that goes to the apartment building. You know, there's five mm-hmm. or six guys, and they're doing whatever they do, standing there talking. And if I, if I didn't go up to them and say who I am, I could be in trouble. Mm-hmm. But my my way of doing it is just walking right up to him and say, hey, I'm working on this case. I'm a private investigator. I'm doing... I'm working for a criminal defense attorney, and I'm looking for so-and-so. And you know what happens? You get a red carpet treatment. Mm-hmm. 
it's really yeah. interesting yeah, no. to me because that is not a method that most investigators use. Right. And going back to your point about the how important it is for the, not only the public to understand the relationship that investigators have to lawyers and the law, is that in in many cases, and it sounds like most of your cases, for example, and most of mine certainly, we are collecting evidence that are that is going to be used by lawyers in some legal context, right? right. Like whether it's That's in right. affidavit or for in a complaint or in some kind of, or in a deposition or in court testimony. And mm-hmm. if you are seen to have gathered that information improperly somehow, it can right. backfire. Like what if you get the most, what if you find a, a witness from a crime to 25 years ago who had testified on the stand um, to having, you know, identified a shooter. And then you find that witness and the witness says, I lied on the stand. Um, that's it. Mm-hmm. And I'm willing to mm-hmm. recant that statement. And that, mm-hmm. You know, you're blowing the case wide open right there. But what if it turns out that right. um, you had told that witness that, you know, you were a, a, an old high school buddy of, it, of his ex-wife and you were, you know, just, you know, trying to catch up and, you know, learn, you know, see how everyone's doing and, you know, and, and it comes out that the, your opposing counsel learns about your lie. It's very mm-hmm. possible that the information you collected would not be admissible, would not be usable. Exactly. So exactly. it's just something to think about in, in terms of how we use the information we use and, and how we collect it. I, I totally agree with you, Tyler. I think it is so important to just be honest and direct and the chips fall where they may. You know, you, you're not in, you're not in the position to fix things. You're in the position to gather information that somebody else can use. And uh, sometimes I think uh, even attorneys get those lines blurred. Mm-hmm. So they're not. Fixed. Yeah, I think none of us are fixed. That's right. <laughs> but I'll give you one more example so, of like the kind the yeah. kind of rules. And, and, and this is actually a, a story from a case I had a few years ago. I was, I was on my way to interview somebody. It was a, a part of an attempt to exonerate somebody who had been wrongly convicted. And we were speaking mm-hmm. to a witness, and I was working with somebody who I had never worked with before. And as we approached the witness's home, um, he pulled out a badge and, and held it up and, and knocked on Ooh. the door and I quickly grabbed his hand and I pushed his hand down and I said, put the badge away because the person we were talking to, we wanted to talk to them about um, possible police misconduct and a badge, a badge signals law enforcement. And exactly. this person was not law enforcement and had never been law enforcement, but, but uh, he had the right to carry a badge in the state. Um, which some states do not allow that. New York State, for example, does not. And Even um, in California? No, not in California. I'd rather not say the state, but... Oh, you said neither does California? Neither in California. Yeah, California right. doesn't allow neither, it either. Neither, right. So, and, and I just give that as an example of how, um, you know, it's possible the interview would have gone fine, but it just felt mm-hmm. like if you show up at someone's house and the first thing you do is flash a badge, it could give the impression, you know, I mean, already people think we're cops, right? 
which is not necessarily exactly. a bad thing all the time, but we are very often the very opposite of police officers. And, and, you know, and, and I having think, to, I think to back job, off of that. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I think our job is to be neutral. We should always mm-hmm. present a neutral stance. You know, taking sides one way or the other or looking like you're on one side or the other does not benefit the case or anyone in the case. Um, so yeah, I, I completely let's back agree. Up, let's back up a second. You know, we've been talking about the Hewlett Packard case. There may be hundreds of people listening that have no idea what we're talking about. We're talking about the Hewlett Packard case. So uh, just a, a brief review. Um, years ago, I think it was about 2005 or six. I think that's right. Uh, there were, yeah, there were problems within the Hewlett Packard boardroom, and some private investor, a group of private investigators, were hired to figure out where the leak was coming from. So that created all kinds of uh, backlash and uh, criminal charges and all kinds of things, and, and some investigators were actually convicted of Ill- illegally accessing personal information. And yeah, the that's, attorneys that's right. involved were, were uh, I don't know, I don't know exactly what happened to them. I'm sure they were sanctioned in some way, but uh, I think they're still practicing. Yeah, my memory, and I have to look this up, is that the only person who actually was convicted of a crime was one of the private investigators who was actually a subcontractor mm-hmm. um, to to the the firm. I don't remember the names that was that was retained. Which is not not an uncommon arrangement, right? I mean, we're often contracting right. each other in different states and for different purposes. Um, and I just think that in many cases there are um, we kind of forget about how that there are <laughs> that there are laws out there that need to be followed. And and you know, it's interesting because when we access, you know, private investigators just like others, law enforcement officers, people in the insurance industry and the like have access to certain databases um, mm-hmm. that, that right at the beginning, as soon as you log in, you have to kind of click through a screen and you have to choose certain permissible purposes exactly. to get through to that exactly. information. And I think that we, we sometimes access these databases so often that we just kind of breeze through that stuff. But I encourage anyone listening to be very careful about that. I mean, you know, we have gotten letters from the New York State Department of Motor Vehicles auditing us for the use of mm-hmm. driving records, not because we've right. done anything wrong, but because we, you know, they they occasionally ask for, the, you know, a, a copy of a letter of engagement that we have with the client to prove that we've accessed these records right. for a legitimate purpose. Right. And a le- legitimate purpose might be, you know, in the context of a active criminal defense proceeding mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. a regulatory investigation, for example. Um, and I think that my guess is that there are a lot of people who are kind of breezing or blowing past those screens without thinking about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Well, and, and that's just and, one tiny example. Know, and we also are many times required to have a site inspection to prove that we're really mm-hmm. licensed private investigators and, and that we operate a business and we have an office and we can lock it up and we have a locked file and we have computers with pass, pass codes, et cetera, et cetera, to, to show people or to show the 
information provider that we are legitimate and that we handle our information judiciously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, it's so, funny. We can uh, talk all day about, like, how, how we need to be Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. <laughs> but um, it, I don't want to take away from how fascinating and fun and, and, and uh, thrilling the job is. Um, exactly. Because so, we we want to encourage more people we, to join. Exactly. So before we leave this, let's go back to the Harvey Weinstein case. Tell me what your thoughts about that. Um, so it's, you know, again, I mean, I think that we don't know very much yet. I mean, it, my, my understanding is that this there were a few firms, including an Israeli firm called Black Cube that was engaged by Harvey Weinstein through his lawyer. Um, to gather what was essentially considering compromising information on women that Weinstein had victimized, allegedly victimized, and journalists whose articles Weinstein was seeking to prevent from being published. And that the tactics of those investigators was really called into question um, because what's been reported is that they were creating, you know, fake identities and they were pretending to work for companies um, that either did not exist or if they existed, that they were essentially fronts. Um, and they were using very questionable, at, least, at the very least ethical, ethically questionable tactics to get information. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and what happened is, you know, whether it's legal or not, it, it certainly, it, it reflects badly on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, yeah. um, sorry, go ahead. You know, well, first of all, a good private investigator, you're not going to know what tactics are used. So let's start there, <laughs> right? Um, right. But uh, to, to do things like that, I mean, we know, pre, we know that pretext is a problem across the country. People do mm-hmm. not like pretext. The reality is we do have to use pre, pretext of some kind to catch fraudsters, for example, catch parental abductions, things like that, where they're not going to call and say, I'm a private invest guy. And fancy, I'm a private investigator. I'd like to talk to you about stealing your child. They're not going to talk to you. Mm-hmm. However, you can't, re- you can't represent yourself. Uh, I, uh, how do I put this? What you're talking about it smacks of legal, illegality. It isn't unless they're saying they're a company that, that really exists or a person that really exists, but it does, mm-hmm. um, it does smack of, of sleazy tactics for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say it's interesting because when you talk to people who are private investigators in other countries, they approach this work often in a very different way. Right. I mean, uh-huh. if you, uh-huh. if you meet somebody from Western, some Western European country, they're not going to call themselves a private investigator. It's a very American phrase, it seems to me. Right. Um, because the yeah. private, you know, the, the, the kind of classic private eye that was, you know, has been mythologized in, um, you know, in, in literature and on film um, is, is a character that, um, you know, certainly exists in other countries. But when you meet somebody from London, for example, who does investigative work, they're, they're more likely to call themselves an intelligence operative 
or somebody who mm-hmm. gathers intelligence. And, right. you know, it's possible that that's because people, and this is a conversation we can maybe have at a certain point about, everyone in our field or many people in my experience in our field are coming to it almost as a second career and they're bringing mm-hmm. with them some experience, right? So maybe they were, um, you know, an intelligence operative. Maybe they worked for MI6. Maybe they worked right. for law enforcement. Maybe they were a, a police detective or an FBI agent. But there are others, too. I, I was a journalist, for example. Um, I know you came, you know, you didn't study private investigations to the effect that you can. Right. Um, <laughs> right. You know, there are people, there are investigators I know who have PhDs um, who are right. accountants. Um, and I think it's such a broad spectrum of industries that feed into our work um, that people bring with them different experiences. Well, and you mentioned in some, in some countries, in some countries, they aren't even allowed to, to say that they're an investigator. In any way, but, they, that's they, right. They're in security, for example. They can't be. Yeah, not only are they allowed to but say it, good. but in, that's right. In so many countries, there's no such thing as. I mean, the phrase "public records" that we use in our industry. I mean, we can say that's that in this country because they're so broad, right? Like, I can find in a second, right, who owns the a house and what the mortgage is and where they've lived before right. and you know, whether they have a criminal record or have been sued before. And these are things that we've been able to do for decades. But that stuff doesn't exist in other countries. So the investigative field is largely made up of people who are savvy at talking to people, what we call source and inquiries. The you know, and the difference with us as private investigators is we know where to go to get the information. Mm-hmm. Where to go, citizen maybe doesn't know that you can get the information, this information here and this other information over there, and you know, we just know where to how to navigate the process. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to take yeah. another break, though. Okay. Uh, let's come right back, Tyler. Uh, and I also want to hear about your book and also your background because we never even got into that. So we'll be right back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. 
NCISS, and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Tyler Moroni is my guest today from New York City with uh, Q, QRI, right, Tyler? Correct. Correct. And we were just talking about Tyler's background. I want to, um, I always like to hear how people got to where they are and where they came from. So what happened with you, Tyler? Um, so I had been working as a journalist for nearly a decade. Um, uh-huh. I began as a fact checker at a magazine, and then I wrote for Fortune magazine as a young reporter um, co- covering the business world. Um, and after that, um, I uh, moved into film production, um, working mm-hmm. for Frontline uh, on PBS, and then I did a lot of freelance writing. And I had always been a kind of generalist as a journalist, so I would write a story about um, a, di- a diplomatic dispute or an art show or, um, uh, you know, an athlete that I liked. And I always found that a bit um, kind of overwhelming because I never really knew what I was mm-hmm. going to work about. I didn't have a, a beat the way some journalists do where they cover the courts, for example. Um, but I love journalism and I had some success in it. And I started getting fascinated with investigative journalism. And, mm-hmm. you know, to me, there's a big difference between investigative journalism and journalism. Some people like to say that all journalism right. is investigative, but that's just not true. And, you know, people who are doing investigative journalism are, are, are looking in many cases for hidden information. They're trying to uncover, in many cases, some kind of wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really fascinated me. So I got into that um, and then, you know, kind of right at the wrong time when the media industry was collapsing. Um, right. <laughs> uh, this is in right around 2004, 2005. Um, you know, and magazines and newspapers were cutting their staffs and, and shaving advertising budgets, and people were losing their jobs. And by chance, I met somebody who worked at Kroll Associates, which is the kind of largest and most well-known corporate investigative firm that had been founded in 1972, so it had been around for decades. And um, this was just a chance meeting, and I um, got into some conversations with them about coming to work with them, and I was offered a job and decided to take it. Um, and I, I confess, in retrospect, I didn't really know what I was getting into because it's not the kind mm-hmm. of job where I can say to them, so tell me about some of your cases. They couldn't really do that except for some of those that were public. Um, luckily, a number of Kroll's cases had been public at that point. So I could right. do my due diligence, so to speak, on it. And I, I fell in love with it immediately uh, because unlike a journalist where you're constantly searching for your next story, 
as an investigator, the stories were, so, as, so to speak, the cases were landing in our laps. People were coming to us mm-hmm. asking for help. And I have to say also, I learned a lot very quickly. And if I ever went back to journalism, I would bring with it much more knowledge now than I had back then. And when I say learn quickly, I mean not only how to speak to people and interview people um, in a more creative way, but also how to, like you were saying earlier, Francine, how to find documents, Um, whether it's going down and digging through the archives at a courthouse or filing a FOIA request or, um, you know, finding metadata in a photograph on an archived website, Um, just very creative ways of, of discovering information. Um, so that's how I got into it. And I, um, I learned a lot about the business world, um, which is something I thought I knew something about having reported for fortune magazine. And it gave me a fascinating glimpse into how prevalent and how common it is for people to use investigators, um, in the work that they do in the business world. Exactly. That's very true. And I see from your bio that you are a Fulbright scholar in Spain. How did that come about? So that's when I um, had decided to leave um, my full-time job. And um, I I had always wanted to live in Europe, and this was an opportunity to do so. So I applied for a Fulbright and got one. Um, And and I lived in Spain for a year and and wrote for a number of American newspapers and magazines from there. Hmm. Um, And it was a fascinating experience. experience because unlike working for a big media organization, I had no support and no help. And I was, you know, kind of out there on my own, digging up stories and and feeding them back to American newspapers and magazines. And I think in many ways, it certainly prepared me to do investigative work because it forced me to be much more creative um, and think think about new ways to track down information in literally foreign countries and, and other jurisdictions. Which is a whole different ballgame. And what part of Spain? Mm-hmm. I was mostly in Madrid, but I spent a number of months in uh, in Seville, down south in Sevilla. Nice. Nice. So now you have this book coming out. Tell us about that. So um, my, my working title, which is a bit tongue-in-cheek, is Corporate Dick. Um, and uh-huh. it's... It's it's going back to what we were talking about earlier about the, the business world. One of the things I've learned as an investigator, as I as I just said, is you know how you know how common it is for people in business. And when I say business, I'm not talking about necessarily multi-billion-dollar corporations, but people you know even who run small companies are using investigators, um, and and not for any nefarious means or for any dispute, but for something as simple as doing a background check on somebody that you're planning to hire. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the book that I have written is a series of stories that are not about me, but about other investigators who have told me their stories um, about um, some fascinating case that they worked. And each chapter has a different thrust and a different set of characters. So one, for example, is about how investigators were working for a bankruptcy trustee. You know, bankruptcy law, even by the admission of a number of bankruptcy lawyers I interviewed for the book, is the least sexy segment of the law. But what I'm trying to do in this chapter, for example, is describe what a fascinating global asset search resulted 
in uh, from this bankruptcy trustee, who, of course, like all trustees, is trying to recover money for creditors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, bankruptcy trustees, in my opinion, are kind of like private investigators. They have to find out where the money is. And right. in this case, this bankruptcy trustee hired investigators who were trying to find a man who was being chased by the law and has had been forced into bankruptcy. And they, these are some, some Brits who had come out of intelligence services and chased this man to the south of France and did just spectacular investigative work figuring out where he was and where his money uh, was buried. Um, and the purpose of that chapter, for example, is not only to tell a cool story about the kind of work that PIs do, but it's also to... It's also an attempt to to, to give a, a, a lesson to tell a story about how the mm-hmm. business world works. For example, the, right. the business world in this case being you know a big company that files for bankruptcy, um, and there's a lot of missing money. Um, and what do you do in those situations, and how can you use investigators to help you? Um, so this is not about <laughs> digging up dirt. This is about using savvy people who can find and recover, in this case, millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. So so talk to me a little bit about the process that you went through writing the book. For, for those PIs out there and others that may be, uh, you know, contemplating writing something, um, what, what was your thinking? What was your process? Did you sit down every day? Did you have timelines? Tell me how you did that. Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing, the first way I'll answer that question is that I was very sensitive to the fact that, you know, it's not like I've left the industry and I'm trying to write a tell-all. Like, this is, mm-hmm. this is very sensitive stuff, often confidential. And so I spent right. a lot of time finding investigators who um, were willing to tell me the story, in most cases with the permission and the collaboration of their client. Um, but also some cases that had maybe been public, but the full story had not been told. Um, and so that was a big part of it. But, um, you know, I wrote um, kind of whenever I could, and I reported it like a journalist. Um, and yeah. in many ways, it was a kind of a return to journalism for me. And I learned a lot about my industry um, in a way that I would not have had the freedom to do otherwise. That's great. Well, Tyler, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. We're out of time. I just got the notification that they're going to cut us off uh, if we don't stop talking. <laughs> but it's been really a delight to have you on the show. I appreciate uh, your insight. And uh, and folks out there, if you're interested in advertising on PI, on uh, I'm sorry to say PI Magazine, PI Magazine is my wonderful sponsors, Jim Nanos and Nicole Cusanini. So, but if you're interested in sponsoring on PI's Declassified, please contact my great executive producer, Sandra Rogers, at voiceamerica.com. And for the rest of you, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Tyler Maroney from New York at QRI Investigations. It's PIC Classified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. And look for uh, Tyler's book, Corporate Dick, if that ends up to be the title. (laughs) Thanks, Tyler. You've been listening to PIC Classified with your host, Francie Kaler. 
Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 